We have one more week in Hosea next week before we get back into our regular series into Genesis, which I'm excited for. We'll be finishing Genesis uh, in the middle of the year, right about when we are going to be welcoming our next little one, which I'm excited for. Hopefully be able to round out a series before, uh, before that happens, but we'll see. Covet your prayers on that one. So Hosea chapter 11. Yesterday, I was living to, uh, listening to the greatest rock band in the world, uh, Nickelback. You guys may have heard of them. Uh, unless you've been living under a rock, you'll know their song Photograph, one of their most famous of songs. It's got 63 million views on YouTube, so better go check it out if you haven't checked it out yet. Uh, the singer Chad Kroger, uh, throughout this song, he reminisces throughout this like photo album, looking at all these different photos and wondering where his life went wrong, where everything went wrong. Uh, have you guys ever done that? Gone through your photo album and kind of reminisced of what was and what could have been and what is and wondered, where did everything go wrong? Sometimes maybe you just look back and things have gone right. I've, I've gone and looked back at some of my old baby photos ever since I've had Calvin just to see whether or not, you know, there were similarities between me as a kid and him. Uh, and to my shock, not really. He's, we look kind of pretty separate, but that's okay. He's got, he's got all the hallmarks of a bros, little blonde kid running around. Uh, but our passage is kind of like this song. It's God reminiscing, in a sense, as he looks over the photo album of him and his son Israel. The moment when he taught Israel to walk. The moment when he carried Israel in his arms. And I guess spiritually put a band-aid on his cuts and bruises. But things are different now from when they first began. Despite the affection and love of God, Israel has abandoned him. Despite how much God has called out to Israel, warning him of danger, Israel has been determined to run away seems almost as if this is just like human nature. This is just what we do. Humanity is destined to turn away from the truth of God. We're destined to turn to lies. It looks like this is going to be the case for all of us. If God had not acted, if God had not entered in. And so this passage, Hosea 11, I've got three points I want to share with you guys. My first point is, I want you to be looking out for the loving father. My second point is the resisted father. And my last point, number three, is the merciful father. So we're going to be starting in verse 1, chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Of course, you will remember that a long time ago in Israel's history, the people of God were trapped in oppressive slavery in Egypt under the rule of the tyrannical Pharaoh. And God called up, stirred up this man, Moses. You guys may remember that story when he 
confronted this burning bush and God called Moses to go to Pharaoh and demand that he let his people go. And in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 to 23, we see something fascinating. This is God speaking. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And in this passage, for the first time in the whole Bible, God revealed himself not only to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he considers the descendants of Abraham, the people Israel, to be his very son, his firstborn son, his dearly beloved son. He was not just their God, but he was as close to Israel as a father is with his son. And it was during this experience of slavery that Israel had in Egypt that they discovered that God was their loving father. God remembers the moment that he led the infant Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness and he made them into a nation. They were a new nation. Not simply just a new nation, but a new kind of nation. They would be a nation of justice in a cruel world, a beacon of light in a dark world, a nation heralding the rescue of the human race. This is who Israel was to be. And God describes the early days as a nation, uh, of their being a nation, as God teaching them how to walk. It's like a father with a son teaching him. He took Ephraim up into his arms. And just so we know, Ephraim is the largest tribe in Israel. So sometimes Hosea uses those terms interchangeably. He took them in his arms. He healed their sickness. He healed their diseases. He constantly rescued them from danger, from warring tribes. And yet they did not know that it was God who healed them. At this point, you'd be thinking, what? How did they not know that this was God? Consider their history. They were led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When they needed sustenance, what happened? Matter rained down from heaven. When they were thirsty, water spilled forth from a rock. God was there for them. He was there healing them. When Moses, when they were getting bit by snakes and they were dying from the venom from the snakes, God made a bronze serpent right? Moses held it up. And if you looked at the serpent, you'd be healed. God literally healed them all throughout their history. You read the book of Judges, he rescued them again and again and again. So how can Hosea say that they did not know that it was God who healed them? How could they not know that this was all by the hands of God? Well, as you know, humans aren't necessarily the greatest of people, are we? Humans are very quick to attribute their own success to their own hands. They begin to feel like they are in control. That all their hard work, their perseverance, their attention to detail, their diligence was responsible for all the blessings that they have. That's the thing that's responsible for everything that they have. They delude themselves really into thinking that God was not present. That God was not the one that truly gave them success. They'd forgotten who they were. Their identity as the people of God quickly changed into a desire to be just like the nations around them. You had the Canaanite peoples, you had the Assyrians and the Egyptians. And what did Israel do? They look around, they see the Assyrians. Oh, you guys are worshipping Baal, you know, you guys look like you're doing well. This, oh, look at all the strength, look at how mighty they are, look at their great philosophy and teaching and wisdom. Let's adopt a little bit of that. Oh, Egypt, look at those grand buildings. Look how amazing you are. 
Look at your great god Horus and Osiris and all the different gods of the Egyptian pantheon, the Canaanite gods, the Baals that we should worship. And they adopted all these gods. They wanted to be just like them. But Israel wasn't called to be just like the nations. They were called to be holy. That word holy means set apart. Their identity as the people of God had quickly changed into a desire to be just like the nations around them. They did not want to be distinct. And hey, just quick check for a second. Do you like being distinct? Look, not really. When God calls us to be holy, and He calls us to be different, which is what the word holiness means. He calls us to live separately and not conform to the way and patterns of this world and not conform to the way this world is. Do we, by nature, feel like this is a good thing, that we want this for our lives? We don't want that. We want to be just like everyone else. We want to fit in. We want to conform. We want to comply. We want to be just the same. And when God calls us to distinctness, to holiness, we end up just like Israel, don't we? Oh, that's hard. I don't want to be distinct. I want to be the same. I want to be admired. I want to be respected. I want to be powerful. I don't want to be different. And we see them falling more and more into being just like the nations. And as they're doing this, just like any loving father would in that moment, God calls to them. He's calling them back. Don't do that, Israel. Don't go down that path. But the more God calls them, what does Hosea say? The more they went away. This is what happens to them. The more he called out to them, the more they continued to sacrificing to other gods. The more they burned offerings to idols. Whether they were burning bulls or they're burning goats or they were burning their own children. Like scared, vulnerable orphans who needed protection, they ran to the apparent provision of the gods. They believed that their lives would be secure by offering sacrifices to the gods and goddesses of the Canaanite, the Egyptians, and the Assyrians. And as God called to them, warning that it was a bad path they were going towards, it did not cause them to come back. Do you know what it did? It scared them. Now, have you ever seen a little child, and they're kind of a bit out of control, and then all of a sudden, that child lurches towards the road? What reaction would a loving parent have in that moment? What would their mother do? What would their father do? Kind of freak out, wouldn't they? Start yelling to the child, come back! You know, like they would yell out to that child because they're out on a busy road. In that moment, love requires harshness, doesn't it? They are in mortal danger. They need to be called back. A loving father doesn't gently request that his son consider his actions. He doesn't say as his son is hurtling towards the road, hey, mate, you might want to contemplate that for a second before you make that bad decision. He's not going to do that. He's going to yell with as loud of a voice that he can muster with as much force as he can uh, propel out there. He will leap into to action and call his son in desperation. Any good relationship between a father and son, that son would immediately respond, wouldn't he? Your dad doesn't normally yell out to you like that, does he? And when he does, you freak out and you go, oh, and you, you freeze. That should have been the response that Israel should have made, right? Imagine for a second you saw that happen on the street. The father yelled out and the son paid him no attention. What would you think about their relationship? It's not very strong, is it? The harshness of God didn't scare them to him. The harshness of God scared them away from him. 
As God called them back to covenant faithfulness through his prophets, the people ran further and further into the arms of the Canaanite gods. Israel did not trust God. They did not trust that he had their good in mind, and he did not tr- they did not trust that he was protecting them from harm. When a child is in danger, love is harsh. God is not harsh with us because he is vindictive. He is harsh with us because he sees the danger. The famous English Puritan John Owen, he says, so long as the father is seen as harsh judging and condemning, the soul is filled with fear and dread every time it comes to him. So in scripture, we read of sinners fleeing and hiding from him. But when God, who is the father, is seen as a father filled with love, the soul is filled with love to God in return. The harshness of God when we recognize that he's a loving father, calls us back to him. John Owen hits the nail on the head. When you read Hosea 11, what you see is not a God who is harsh because he is fed up or vindictive or bitter or malicious. He is a loving father and he takes Israel in his arms. He heals their wounds. He leads them, the text says, with the cords of kindness and the bands of love. There's a really tricky Hebrew phrase that we see in here where he says, um, I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. Really hard to translate this phrase, but I would go more towards, I am one who is like one who raises a child up to the cheek. I think contextually, that's probably what's going on here. He's a loving father. He loves Israel. It's actually going to be God's very goodness and his love that's going to lead them to him. He eased their load, he bent down to them, and he fed them. This is not the description of a father who is harsh for harshness sake, is it? He is harsh because they are in grave danger. They need to be warmed before they jump off the deep end. And when God warns us of sin, he does so because he's not, he's not standing over us in condemnation. He's not standing over us heaping guilt and scorn and shame upon us until we come crawling to him, begging him for forgiveness And then he can say, well, looky here, you know, you're in my power. Let's see what I do with you. That's not who God is. But listen, he could do that. He would have every right to do that. He would have every right to reject us in that moment when we come to him in repentance. But instead, God warns us like a doctor warning of stage four cancer. It isn't fun. If you want a really terrible job to have to do, go and tell someone they have stage four cancer. Be that doctor. That's a tough gig. It is a tough gig. But if he just said nothing, that's bad, isn't it? You'd want that that doctor to be sacked because they are in danger. It's not fun. It's quite miserable. God warns us of sin, but he has the solution. He can heal us. He can restore us. But first we must return to him or else we'll be finding ourselves falling into the same situation as these Israelites. And that leads me to my second point, the resisted father. Verse 5, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. 
We see in here the, the unfortunate history of Israel. They soon come under attack from the Assyrian Empire and they will be subjugated and carted off as slaves. Israel would return to slavery, but not in Egypt this time. They were in Egypt before. Assyria will be their king now. Assyria will conquer them. If you know anything about the Assyrian Empire, you know that they were a brutal, cruel, callous people. There is stuff that they did that I could not repeat in this sermon because of the little ears that are here. They're going to be carted off as slaves. This nation who had escaped slavery in Egypt so long ago will return to it. They're going to return in Assyria because they've refused to return to God. And God has given them every chance to repent. Centuries of warning have passed. Centuries. This isn't just something that God did within a year. He gave them so long. He was patient. He's been faithful. And yet God is going to withdraw his protection. He's not going to keep protecting them anymore. You see this similar dilemma faced by parents who have a wayward child, right? That child is starting to walk down some bad paths, start to get in some bad addictions. They need their parents to come and pick them up from jail, bail them out. They live off the generosity and shelter of their hardworking parents, refuse to get a job, sleep in till like 1 p.m., don't do anything. You you hear of parents that have children like that and there's this dilemma. What do we do with this kid? What do we do with our son? What do we do with our daughter? No matter how much love, attention and affection that we are lavishing upon them, they're dead set on rejecting everything we stand for, all of our values, all of our way of life. Again and again, we have warned them about their path and they still persist. And parents are just faced with, what do we do? We love them. What should a loving parent do? Oh, he's in jail again. I guess we're going to have to go bail him out. Could pay his bills, feed him, shelter him. At what point does that turn into enabling? At what point is the loving thing to do to abandon your child? It's horrific. It's a horrible thing to have to to think about. You start to think, would cutting them off actually be beneficial for them? Would it teach them some responsibility? Would it teach them to sort their life out? It's a heartbreaking story that we've heard all too often. I have stories like this in my life. I know people very close to me that are like this. It's heartbreaking. I don't even know what to tell the parents. Israel lived in a cold, cruel world. Just like we many times live in a cold, cruel world. But the ancient world, get this, it is no joke. The ancient world is a harsh place. They thought the gods of the Canaanites were going to give them satisfaction, fulfillment, security and protection. What's God going to do? All right. Let's see if these gods can protect you. What was going to happen? We see verse 6. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their counsels. And while the nation was under God's care and loving protection, they were safe. He had given them success so many times in battle, again and again and again. But this time God will withdraw, Assyria would invade, and He will not stop them. Right? It's like that wayward son calling out, bail me out of jail. The money's not coming this time, mate. The provision's not going to come. They will call out to the Most High. And he will not listen this time. Sad, isn't it? They resisted him for so long. They abandoned him for so long. It's too little, too late. Israel would be destroyed. And this is true of the man or woman who refuses to turn to God. Eventually, 
over the course of their life, through blessing and suffering, a consistent rejection of God will eventually be met by rejection by God. It's sad. The moment when you stand before God, He will say, Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We know God. This is not the end of the tale, is it? It's not the end of the tale for Israel. We're only halfway through our verse. What we're about to hear in Hosea is amazing. Verse 8. Listen to the heart of the Father. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboyim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. What passion in this, in this passage. You see the inner turmoil, the anguish that God is feeling as he's handing over his firstborn son to Assyria. He is torn at the idea of treating Israel like Adma and Zeboim. And you might be thinking, what are those cities? Well, they were cities that were destroyed alongside Sodom and Gomorrah. There were five cities destroyed. Adma, Zeboim were among them. Deuteronomy 29, 22-23 says, And the next generation, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a far land, will say when they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. And here is God recoiling in his heart that he's going to treat Israel like Adma or Zeboim. It says here, my heart recoils within me, but the Hebrew word is actually the same word for overthrown, the same word with which God overthrew the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim. God's own heart is being overthrown in this moment. God's very heart is breaking. He is compassionate and loving, and it is utterly breaking that it has come to this point. That it has come to this point that Israel has persisted the way that they have. And he vows that he will never again destroy Ephraim. Why? Because I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. What a surprise that is. Normally when we think about God's holiness, right? We're not thinking about something like this. We, we associate His holiness with God's purity. We associate it with His opposition to sin. And yet it is God's very holiness that leads Him to mercy. Why? Because holiness means to be set apart or different. And God is different to us. He is not like us. He's not like you. He is not like me. He is not a mere man or woman. The typical human response to this level of betrayal and rejection is revenge, isn't it? 
And God would be right to get revenge, but he doesn't. His heart recoils within him. We've seen time and time again that God is not vindictive. He is not malicious. He is a God of love. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God is different. He does not change his mind. He fulfills every word that he has spoken. And because God is different, God does not get angry like we do. You want to know how I get angry? Get a bit mopey, sulk a bit, get into a bad mood, I'm a bit grumpy. Remember when your dad got a bit grumpy and you kind of just walked on eggshells, made a wide berth around him, making sure not to set him off? You know, your dad's going to come around eventually. He'll chill out. Just give him some space, right? How often do we think about God like that? Just give him a bit of space. He'll be right. We'll come, you know, we'll ask him for forgiveness a bit later, right? God's anger is very different. And not in a good way either. He is very serious about sin. His anger doesn't just subside. It doesn't come in waves. It doesn't flare up. His anger is perfectly proportionate. He is perfect in justice and he will not rest until every wrong is made right. That's a problem. That's a big problem. And yet we see here in Hosea that God is determined to show mercy. So what do we do with this? We've just read in Numbers that God does not change his mind. And that is as true as anything. God does not change his mind. And yet it seems as if God can't decide whether he's going to show mercy or he's going to lash out in wrath and judgment. Tim Chester says that God's determination to judge and show mercy sit uncomfortably beside one another in Hosea. Don't they? What's going on, God? Are you going to be merciful or are you going to judge? Because you can't do both. Which one will it be? God may have withdrawn his protection and plunged Israel into a national crisis, but he will not destroy them. He says that he will come as the Holy One into their midst. And when he comes, it will be with mercy. He will not come in wrath. Amazing. We see that Hosea 11, chapter 1, is picked up by Matthew. When Jesus goes to Egypt, fleeing, right? That evil King Herod, as he kills all the baby boys and Jesus has to flee with his parents into Egypt for protection. And then eventually, Joseph brings Jesus back out of Egypt. And what is quoted in that passage? When Israel was a child, I loved him. And this last bit, out of Egypt, I called my son. What's going on there? Well, we see in Jesus a different kind of son. A different kind of firstborn son than Israel was. It wasn't until the incarnation of Jesus Christ that we see that idea of judgment and mercy finally being resolved. When we come to the cross of Jesus, we see the perfect fulfillment of both judgment and mercy. His judgment does not compromise his mercy and his mercy does not compromise his judgment. God can prove himself to be both the perfect judge who takes sin as seriously as a good judge should and the merciful, loving father that he is. 
Listen to how Paul describes this in Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's bad. But verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Oh, so good, hey? The word propitiation means the turning aside of wrath. Christ's blood spilled on the cross was offered up in our place so that we could walk free. The wrath and justice of God was poured out rather than on us. It was poured out on Jesus so that God could both be just and the justifier. That he could both be perfect in justice and justify you before him so that you may be blameless in his sight. Amazing. This was all accomplished by the loving work of Jesus. Jesus was the perfect firstborn son where Israel utterly failed. Where God called out to Israel and Israel went further and further away, God called out to his son Jesus and he answered and he obeyed and he perfectly fulfilled the will of the Father. When Jesus came to earth, he was the Holy One in our midst and he did not come in wrath to judge the world, but in grace and mercy. He came to ransom a people to set them free and make it possible for them to receive mercy. How amazing. God does not treat us like Adma and Zeboyim because Jesus was treated like them in our place. We are not overthrown because Jesus was overthrown in our place. In this passage of Hosea, we see a clear picture of the gospel, don't we? We see that tension between God's attributes as both just and merciful come out in the cross of Jesus. At the cross, we see God's infinite wisdom and how he made it possible for wretched sinners like us to walk free. And when you understand this, it is profoundly transformative, isn't it? We can all remember that moment when the gospel message just grabbed a hold of our hearts. And we realize with truthfulness, we are sinners, but God is merciful. We're not better than anyone else. We needed the same sacrifice. We all need the same mercy. We all need the same forgiveness. When you realize that, you realize that you're just a beggar, really. Like, we're just beggars showing other beggars how to find some bread. We're showing each other how to find salvation. We're looking around and we're saying, there is some amazing news. It's exactly what Hosea says, verse 10. Let me refresh you. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. God roars like a lion. He's calling his children back from the four corners of the earth. Think about that for a second. Every time the gospel is preached, God is roaring like a lion. 
calling his people home. And those who belong to him will come to him. Those who are called by him will come to him. They will turn to his kingdom. Christian, remember this, that every time you proclaim the mercy of the cross of Jesus, whether you feel weak or you feel embarrassed or you feel awkward, through that weakness of you, yours, God is roaring to his people and his people will listen. They will come. Be bold. Because if it was in our strength, then yeah, of course, feel weak, feel embarrassed, feel awkward, feel all these things because we have no power. But when the littlest and the lowliest of us proclaim the message of the gospel, it is God roaring through that message. His children come trembling to him, Hosea says. So trust his word. Trust him. Be bold in proclamation. I have seen some of the most lowly Christians have the most insane uh, influence on people for the gospel. Things that they would think, wow, I couldn't believe that God would use me. God can use anyone, right? Because it is not in our own strength that people come to believe in Jesus. It's when we proclaim the gospel and God roars through that message. It's profound. So be washed, be transformed, and know that when our little church proclaims the truth of the gospel, it is not us speaking, but the roaring of God calling his people back to him. Let's pray. Father, how wonderful it is to read the book of Hosea and to see your love for your people. Father, often I read your word in the Old Testament, and I'm amazed at how merciful and gracious you are how long-suffering and persevering you are with a wayward people who refuse to return to you. Father, sometimes I expect that you would come down on judgment, in judgment in, in a split second, in an instant, and yet, Lord, you are so long-suffering for centuries. Father, I thank you that you were long-suffering with me and that you were long-suffering with these men and women and that you called each and every one of them at the right time back to you. Whether it was later in life or when they were still a child, Lord, when your gospel is preached, you are roaring and you will call your people back to yourself. Father, I pray, Lord, for all the people here, Lord, would they believe this? Would they believe that in their weak awkward presentations of the gospel that they would hope and trust that you are roaring through that because this is what you have said father we thank you that your message is the power of god unto salvation for all who believe thank you lord for your goodness we thank you lord for your grace and it's in jesus name we pray amen